You're listening to the Salty Sex Cast with Pamela and Mariah. Yeah, and what's puberty? The sex education you wish you had in high school. Maybe a diagram will help. Hello, and welcome to the Salty Sex Cast. Hi, Mariah. Hi, Pamela. How's your we week have- it's it's been a week and it's felt like a month in quarantine time. Yes. Like I'm like, yeah, remember that last week and yada yada. And my husband's like, so that was yesterday. And like, <laughs> it feels like it was so long ago. Time is going really slow, which good or bad, it's just slow. Well, we have um, a couple of guests with us today. They are the writers of Intimacy and Diabetes. Um, and so we're just going to let them introduce themselves. Um, Donna, do you want to go first? Sure. My name is Donna Rice. Um, I am a registered nurse, a certified diabetes educator, and I've been working in diabetes for a really long time, for over 25 years, and um, have done a lot of work nationally and internationally and started really working in sexual health in about the late 80s, early 90s, when noticed that so many of my patients really had, especially men, had problems with erections and problems, not only with diabetes, but with other, you know, heart disease and some other things going on. And at the time, you know, there wasn't a lot of information out there and um, worked with a young urologist to kind of launch a program called HIM, Help for Impotent Men at the time because of course women, we didn't really address women's issues back then. And um, really just continued my work in diabetes and um, sexual health and uh, fast forward so many years, I've done a a lot of work on on different um, committees and worked with Janice on a lot of different things, really focusing on uh, sexual health and diabetes. Fantastic, and Janice, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Okay. Well, I started out as a registered dietitian, became a specialist in diabetes, certified diabetes educator, started getting interested in the sexual piece and how diabetes affects couples, actually, because I was doing a nutrition consult with a a gentleman who had diabetes. And then when I went out into the waiting room, I saw this woman weeping in the waiting room inconsolably. And I sat down next to her. Turns out that she was this gentleman's wife. And I said, you know, how can I help? What's going on? Could I help you? And she said, I can't take it anymore. Our relationship is a mess. This diabetes is driving me crazy. And I had nothing to give her, nothing to say, nothing to, you know, just, I'm here for you, but nothing to hand out to her, no website to go to, nothing. So I decided to start writing about how diabetes impacts relationships and got more into the sexual piece. And um, now, fast forward, we're doing fast forward. I am now a licensed marriage and family therapist. I added that. And I am a board-certified sex therapist. And between us, um, Don and I have written several books together. I've written a total of five books. And uh, we, what's interesting is we met. Um, we've been writing partners for, I don't know, 12, a long time. So we met, we met at a conference in Miami for the CDC. Both we were, uh, Don and I were supposed to speak to these healthcare professionals. I think there were about 300 in the room, all about diabetes and their patients. And um, we got up to the podium and I asked for a show of hands, how many of you ever asked your patients about diabetes and their sexual difficulties? 
And out of the room of 300 plus, I think two people shyly went like this and the rest looked at their feet because they were so embarrassed that I had asked the question. And Dan and I had just met. We were on the sitting on the podium together and I turned to her and we both agreed we've got to start writing and do something and turn this around. And so we've been uh, doing working on it since. So that was a long time. Our first book was out in 2006, I think. Yeah, we've been doing it for a while. Wow, speaking every year. Yep. In fact, we're speaking this year again in August. Yeah. If it goes, it's probably going to be virtual. But at this point, you know, nobody knows. But yeah, and you know, it's really surprising because even we've been doing it what 15, 20 years, Janice. Yeah. The issues still happen today. I mean, it's still healthcare providers don't really discuss it. Nobody has time, or you know, they use time as an excuse not to address it, I think. And, you know, you have new crops of people coming in and new educators and new nurses and new physicians. And it's just not part of what they're taught anymore. It's not part of even some of the common language. So I think even though we felt like we've come a long way, there's still, we still have a long way to go. I mean, really, it's, it's well, just and been, if I, I could, think. Go ahead. Uh -huh. go ahead. And if I could throw one more thing out, in addition to the healthcare providers not asking, and not having the knowledge, and I hope we'll cover this, I'm sure we will in, the, in this program. Um, men knew that there was a connection between diabetes and erectile dysfunction. They kind of would know if their, if their blood sugar was getting too high, usually it was obvious that they weren't able to get a uh, you know, satisfactory erection. But women didn't know, and still many women don't know, that their diabetes could be playing a role in their inability to have a satisfactory sexual sexual relationship and when we first wrote our when we wrote our first book the publisher told us to write about the men and when i said i'd like to also write about the women the publisher said why and that's when we said uh duh so anyway it's been a uphill battle but it's been uh, you know we've i think we've been able to share a lot but i'm glad i'm thrilled that thank you so much for inviting us because i think um it's a good topic to share with everyone. Yeah, when, when I first started doing it, like in the late 80s, early 90s, trying to, you couldn't even advertise it. If you put anything in for the radio, anything, yeah. I mean, it, it got rejected. You couldn't even talk about it. Even doing the program within a health system was really a stretch of everybody's imagination. And I think even I, growing up in it, Janice, I mean, the two of us were like pioneers. I mean, we were actually ridiculed and made fun of by yeah. other colleagues for doing it because I thought it was kind of like, you know, pornographic, you know, and it was just, yeah. um, it's just amazing. I think some of the percep perceptions, I remember we were going to speak in, in uh, Utah and when they heard the topic, they wouldn't let us come in. So, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just been interesting. Yeah, that's, no, that's not surprising. And in fact, that's why that we yeah. do this podcast because Utah is so very conservative and a little it bit is, backward in that way but the thing that I um, realized though when reading your book was that it's actually useful for most people like anybody who's having any kind of difficulty um, with sexual dysfunction not not just people with diabetes though obviously the focus is diabetes so I think it's super helpful and I would encourage anybody to read it it's a quick read too Thank and you. clear well organized Thank you. Yeah.
a lot of resources, which I think is important. People have to know where to go or even how to ask the conversation, open up the conversation because it won't half the time it's never asked. So if you don't know how to kind of get it in and start that conversation, I think it's, um, I mean, it's just critical. And we were hoping that some of those messages um, were really transmitted through our book. It's, it's a, a not a natural conversation for such a natural human thing. And right. so, yeah, I think you do a really, sure. really great job um, pointing to that and where, where are the, our biggest gaps and what can you do as, um, you know, an individual, but also calling out like the healthcare professionals and that I really, you know, cause I'm, um, a certified health education specialist. And so seeing that, and when you're talking about, we don't talk, I mean, we learn about the eight dimensions of wellness. Nowhere in there is anything about <laughs> sexual health or intimacy. It's here's your physical health, your, you know, mental wellness, all these other things. And so it was really kind of like, how is this it's totally <laughs> forgotten? And that was really kind of what stemmed my frustration to start the podcast. So very similar to, you know, the birth of your guys's, um, research and everything that's gone through and put into this book so well you, you know the one thing that um that i've always emphasized when people have a chronic condition chronic disease especially diabetes they come to their healthcare provider and we ask them to do things with their partner we ask the partner to um help them prepare the right foods read labels to support their need to be physically active and to support that some of their finances might go to a health club and, you know, all these things and check their feet and check their blood and all this stuff. But what I find is if things aren't going well in the bedroom, you could have a couple sitting in front of you and he may not be, I've had this with a couple where he was struggling to have an erection with his wife and instead of understanding that it was a diabetes-related issue, she thought he was having an affair. So here I am with this couple. They do not understand why he's struggling. And it is a medical issue. And, you know, they, they're so mad at each other. And here I'm, you know, saying, well, and now you're going to read labels together and help each other. And you've got to include the bedroom piece. The intimacy piece, it's so huge. It's so huge to be able to communicate in the bedroom. And also, it's such an important respite. The bedroom is the playground. It's the adult's playground. It's where you can relax. It's where you can be yourself. It's where you can have fun. And diabetes, when it's affecting or any chronic issue, as you know, as you mentioned, Pamela, this really goes to a lot of things. But if medical health is, is, has entered the bedroom, and you're not able to respond the way you want to, all of a sudden there's performance anxiety and there's pressure and there's discomfort and anticipation of failure. And we really, that's one focus of the book, we really want to bring sex back to where it belongs, which is connection, fun, and, um, you know, just a, a, an adult way to be with, the, with someone who is your, you know, your most important partner. Just opening the communication and, and getting away from the blame game, because we've seen it so many times where, you know, and, and, you know, when you think in terms of what happens in a diabetes counseling or when people go to the doctor, they focus on one thing and usually they focus on blood sugars. Yep. And then they kind of, well, let's talk about why your blood sugars are high. 
nobody talks really about the stress related to whatever it is being related to, especially when it comes to sexual health, because they're not going to open up and say it. So you find this continual blame game instead of really getting to the crux or the root of the problem it's circumvented all the time so then there are 15 minute 10 minute appointments over and they go out the door but nothing changes because nobody's asked the question nobody's you know gave them any answers so i I, there's just so much that can happen with a simple question if you ask a simple question and you probe a little bit and you get answers and you say you know what many of the people I take care of or many men have this problem too. You kind of normalize it and it happens with diabetes. So you're taking it off of themselves and you're putting it on the disease. And I think it makes, it makes a huge difference. It just, it's like night and day. Janice and I both know that if you really want to help somebody, you have to ask the right questions. And then you, you, you know, you always, what's, what matters most to people you answer the questions and give answers to what matters most. And then, you know, you can deal with maybe blood sugars. You could deal with, you know, your eating habits or whatever. But it's if you're not hitting the crux of the problem, you're not going to really help impact diabetes or control or blood pressure control or whatever. Well, and here's the other piece. I know, <laughs> see, Pamela, you're about to ask a question. But here's, here's, okay, here's the other piece is that people, um, people with diabetes don't realize that there's help that there's treatments and there's a lot of different options. And one thing that we know about men who have diabetes is that the nice oral pills that you see on TV, sitting in the bathtub, the couple holding hands, you know, taking Cialis or Levitra or Stendra or whatever the other, you know, um, it doesn't, those pills don't always work in men with diabetes. And I did have a story about someone I saw who um, I happened to mention, you know, I wanted an update on how his sex, um, you know, activities, sexual activities were going. It was the first time I saw him. And he said that 10 years ago, he told his doctor, he got up the courage to tell his doctor that he was having erection problems. Doctor wrote a prescription for Viagra. He took it and it didn't work. And he was too embarrassed to say anything. The doctor never asked again. And he told me that he hadn't had sex with his wife in 10 years. Oh, no, I know. Cause he, because you go, you assume he assumed that diabetes could have taken a variety of things away from him because you have the long list of, if it gets bad enough, I'll, my vision may be affected. Um, you've heard of people with amputations. I mean, you've heard of real tragic stories and he just assumed that it took his sex life away, and there you go. And he had no idea that there's so many options for treatment. So it was a rough story, but fortunately, a good ending. So So I want our audience to understand exactly how diabetes affects um, sexual health. So can you start at the very beginning? In the the beginning of your book, you talk about um, how the human physical Tell us about the human physiological response to falling in love and um, and that feeling of physical attraction and then why it's important for people with diabetes to understand and if there's a difference between the male and female response. So I, I guess I can start. And I think to be really, really simple, because physiologically, there's a lot of things happen when you get you know aroused or stimulated. But I think from a, a 
clinical perspective, I think it's really important to understand that in order to really function normally, you have to have intact nerves and intact blood vessels. So we know over time, people develop atherosclerosis. Um, they develop issues with their nerves. And, and to think about it, if, if wherever there's a blood vessel, there's a nerve right next to it. And the job of the nerve is to really tell the blood vessel to either dilate and bring more blood in or constrict, right? And to, um, to do this. So if you have any kind of chronic disease, anything that can affect blood vessels, like diabetes does affect blood vessels, your blood vessels don't respond. And so if you can't get the dilation to actually fill the penis to engorge it with blood, and the nerves are affected as well. So the nerves can't control. So sometimes men could get erections, but it doesn't clamp down and then they lose the erection when they change position or move. So I think the best way, just really simple, is to think that you know we have to stay healthy and we want the most important blood um, organ in our body is really our blood vessels, the endothelial lining of our blood vessels. So we want that to be really intact and healthy. So in order to have an erection, you have to have good blood vessels, good nerves, you get stimulated, the blood vessels and nerves tell the blood vessels to dilate and it engorges. And it's the same thing in the female, the female sex response because you have engorgement as well. So I, you know, so people think of diabetes as blood sugar, but we know it's way more than blood sugar, it's a multitude of different things. So it does affect blood vessels and it does affect nerves. And so many people have hypertension, they're on medications to lower. Um, blood pressure and all of this can have a really negative effect. So you have to look at that whole person and really the whole picture of what's going on and what medications they're on. Nothing is hopeless. There's always hope and there's always treatments and you can change things around and there's things that you can add so that you can have, you know, be successful in the bedroom as well. So now I can add, now I can add the big question mark, which is women. So first of all, the research in women uh, really didn't start getting going until the later part of the, you know, 2000s. Really in 2002, they started having studies because women, it's harder to get women to participate in the studies. It's also harder to measure if a woman is actually feeling something or her body is changing. You would have to put electrodes on the vulva tissue and, you know, where men, it's much easier to see. Is he becoming aroused? Is he becoming erect? That's one piece. But what we find in diabetes, with men, there's a very, very uh, well-understood relationship between blood sugar level and their ability to have a, a satisfying erection. And we know that if their blood sugar goes too high, they are less likely to have a satisfactory erection. If it gets more in a healthy range as determined by their health care providers, it, it, they will improve. So if they start making better food choices, if they start becoming more physically active, if they stop smoking, all those things that affect blood flow, all those things that affect blood sugar um, levels, if they start, in other words, ha having making healthier choices, life choices, their sexual abilities can improve markedly. Now we come to women. We don't see that clear connection. You could have a woman who has the most perfect blood sugar level, her numbers are great, She's a textbook, you know, perfect patient, yet she's still having pain during intercourse or vaginal dryness or, um, you know, just a whole slew of things. Her libido is problematic, getting aroused, having an orgasm. We don't fully understand women's issues. What we do know is that there's a very strong connection between women 
diabetes, and depression. And that link between d depression and also that kind of brings in the blood, blood sugar issue too, because when your blood sugar is uh, swinging, going too high or too low, and you know it's not in really a good place, a lot of times we have mood swings and that can prompt even more depression. So we know that depression is an indicator in women with diabetes of possibly having sexual problems. And um, so that is one big piece and so women need to look much more holistically at their lives, at their stress level, at their relationship, at their ability to communicate, rather than just checking the blood sugar. We, we need to look certainly at everyone holistically, but even more so in terms of women and in terms of helping women uh, really have more success in that area. And that's what I, I really loved about the book because I was like, anyone can take all of this advice. I mean, just the first couple chapters is really diabetes specific. Um, but then it was like, well, yes, healthy communication. <laughs> and yes, all these other things that were so great. And I was like, yes, yes. I'm just like nodding the whole time. I'm like, I love all of it. And I really do like the story scattered throughout too, because then it makes a better connection, yeah. you know, some, uh, a description on a paper kind of it's like oh you know someone was there someone has been in those shoes too so I loved that part of it as well thank you <laughs> yeah and, thank and people you. really I think they learn through stories and learn through examples of other people and I think what Janice and I did um, bring people into our um, discussions so we have couples that actually can really share their stories and I think that's really important to hear and I think that's the whole thing of peer support and knowing that you're not alone and and it's you know you just have to speak up and you just have to say it and I think just hearing other people's struggles really makes a big difference and we we found that that's been really, really a, instrumental for us or to connect people to people who've maybe had a certain treatment option and they can talk about it, you know, the pros and the cons and, you know, this didn't work for me for this reason. And it gives people that information so that when they do go to their healthcare provider, they could say, you know, well, what about this? And it just arms them with better ways to communicate and better things to think about and, and things to say, hey, you know, I think this is the treatment that I want. Can you help me obtain this? Awesome. Um, what are some of the feelings that can interfere with good emotional and sexual health? And what are some of the tools to deal with those? Well, um, I address that in the book and I'm sure you address it often in your show because it's the same with everyone across the board. So as Mariah said, communication and the flip side of communication is feeling that you're not being heard and that they're not seeing you and you can't be who you want to be and you can't share your own needs. So I do talk about in, in the book certain things about um, uh, like pairs. There's that group called pairs and they have a wonderful communication tool. They have a daily um, temperature reading about your relationship where you connect and you say something positive to each other and then you use the eye language where you're using eye language to share how you feel. Not to say you have to stop doing this, but saying I feel very um, scared when this happens and here's what I need. So the wording would be, I feel blank when blank, what I need is. 
blank. And so you're really just sharing your needs, wants, and communicating that as, as adults. So that's part of it. I think that helps with the frustration. Um, I, I, I'm very big into writing. I'm a very narrative therapist. So I think journaling is important and writing things down and getting it out and just doing kind of the work on your own. I think people who journal things and, and write about the frustration, even if it's just a few minutes every day or when something's happened, take, when it's happening, take a few minutes and write. It gives you an opportunity to take it out of your brain where it's racing around like a hurricane and causing this emotional chaotic experience. And when you, uh, you know, research has shown that when you actually put it into organized sentences, what's bothering you, it calms your brain, it calms your thinking, and that in itself can be incredibly healing. So that's something also. The other thing too, which I think is very powerful, again, a, a narrative tool, is um, personalizing what we call externalizing the problem. So for instance, when people are in a bedroom, you've got the two partners and you have diabetes, assuming that just one of them has it. Um, or both could, but you've got diabetes there also. So it's really a third person in the relationship. So here, you're trying to have a real nice connection with the person that you care about, and you have this medical issue that's causing mood swings and causing feelings and causing energy levels. So rather than blaming each other and saying, listen, it would be so much better to be with you if you felt better or if you stopped complaining or if you, you know, your energy was better, your blood sugar was better. Um, what we do is you take diabetes and you externalize it. You, you take it out of the relationship. You put it, you make it into someone else. So an example I like to use, which worked for uh, a couple that I worked with, if, I don't know if you remember, but Prince Charles used to be married to Princess Diana. And they, this couple, I asked them to take the diabetes and create another person. And if you remember um, when Prince Charles was married to Diana, there was a third person in the marriage, and that was Camilla Parker Bowl. And they named diabetes Camilla. So whenever <laughs> the husband who had diabetes, whenever he just wasn't in the mood or he had an erection, a problem uh, in bed or just something went wrong instead of blaming him and saying, you know, if you only took your medicine the way you're supposed to, or as if you, you know, all this blame, all this new language, you, 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 instead it was that freaking Camilla, what is she doing in here again? And also I, I actually recently spoke to them and I said, how are you doing? And they go, well, things were good. And then Camilla came back and we got to kick that, you know, kick her to the curb. It, it get, the two of them remembered that they're on the same team and it's diabetes on the other side and it's not going away. So you have to learn how to live with it. It's a chronic issue, but neither one of you is the problem. It's the diabetes. And that way you remove the hate, you remove a lot of the strong emotion and the blame and just put it on diabetes. So I recommend to anyone who's listening, Take your diabetes, give it a name, give it a shape, call it, you know, somebody you've always hated at work, whatever you want to do. And use that to keep your relationship thriving while you deal with, you know, George from IT, who you can't stand, but you got, but he's there anyway. So let's feed George, you know. So it's a game too. And you can also bond with that game. So 
That's great advice. Um, you talked too about having a, a growth mindset in all of this. Can you can you talk to our audience a little bit about that? Well, this comes this comes from Carol Dweck. Um, she has a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, and she said that there's two mindsets that people tend to have. One is the fixed mindset where they really feel that they're stuck with who they are. They're stuck with life as it is. And anything that comes up is, is a, um, you know, kind of a stumbling block that's in the way of them getting to what they want to get their goals. They'll never get better at it. People who are talented were born that way and it's them and they're stuck. And uh, it's a very, um, anti-growth type of perspective and it's one that really can bring a person down and contribute and, and kind of nurture that depression type of feeling that things are hopeless the growth mindset is one where you experience you view the world as opportunities for growth that you can always learn you can always learn to do something in a different way you can always be better you can always develop talents maybe you didn't know you had and so you can choose you know i'm sure you've said it all the time that you know we can't choose what happens to us but we can choose how we react to it and if you react to it with a fixed mindset woe is me i'm stuck um Fix you'll down. be stuck you'll be stuck and if you say on this yeah yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a time for me to grow. This is a time for me to learn something new and to try something different. And that growth mindset can really be helpful. And it's not, you know, it's a it's a real opportunity to to view your life in a in a perspective that's much more healing and and positive. And you could tell, like, when you're counseling people to kind of like where they are, you know, in what kind of mindset. And it's really interesting because looking at like couples that were really successful and really dealing with it, they were open to really trying different and new things and, um, and experiment and enjoy each other from their the perspective of where they're coming from. And I think that's important because one of the things we always tell them is like Janice's comment about taking diabetes out of the bedroom. It's really, how do you reconnect emotionally? So what was it, you know, sometimes just talking to them, well, what, why were you attracted to him? you know, 50 years ago or, or 25 years ago? And how has that grown? How has that changed? And what can bring it back? And sometimes just bringing out um, those different kinds of conversation makes them kind of like perk up and think in terms of, yeah, you know, it was really good. And how do we get back there? And then setting goals, like what's your goal to the, if it's a heterosexual couple, what's your goal to the man and what's your goal to the women? And sometimes their goals are entirely different. Sometimes women, they're very satisfied with just hugging and, and laying together in bed and watching a movie. And his goal might be a little bit different. His might be really focused on that erection and you know penetrating and all that, all that. So it's really, how do we work with each of them to really accomplish those goals? And it's really interesting when you talk about those different mindsets, because it's so much easier to really work with people that are willing to really try and take a deep breath back and really think through it a little bit differently than, you know, just, well, I'm a victim. And, you know, because sometimes bringing them out of the victim role is a little bit, right, Jen, it's a little more difficult, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, as you know, to get someone out of the victim role, I mean, people yeah. tend to stay in their roles when there's when there's what we call secondary gains. When you're gaining something by being it, maybe you're getting a lot of attention, you're getting a lot of uh, payoff in some way. And that's what makes it harder for people to move to a new place. 
Um, we're hoping that medically people are willing to give it a go because it's coming through a different doorway. You, you know, you want to become healthier, hopefully. You want to feel better all around, not just in the bedroom. But as I said earlier, the bedroom is such a huge place because we want couples to work as a team to support everyone's health. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're mad at each other, you know, I'm not freaking cooking for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you want me to read labels? Read the stupid labels yourself, you know. So <laughs> then it becomes a, a real negative and it becomes harmful and it, it affects um, their overall health and the future of, of their, you know, diabetes status and so on. I'm sure you see a lot of, um, you know, newly diagnosed folks who really, really struggle with that kind of growth mindset because all of a sudden it's this thing has happened to me um, and now it's going to change every aspect of my life. Um, have you seen any, what typically kind of helps get them over that hump and really starting to is it consistent therapy? Has it just been, you know, um, if you look at it this way, sometimes that can help you change that mindset yeah. or is it just kind of personality wise? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. And I, I could tell, you know, when I think in terms of couples that I've really dealt with, if one person is even a little bit positive, because, it's, you know, I could think of one couple that like, you know, your diabetes, our whole family is going to be healthier you know, from a perspective like that. And it was just like, a, it was just like a no brainer, you know, but it, and I've had couples were like, oh, now we can't do this. And now we can't do that. You know, and it's, it's really, really having to, to kind of change those mindsets, but it's really saying that, you know, diabetes is controlled. You can control diabetes. You don't want diabetes to control you. So I think if you put them in the driver's seat and give them the tools and the ammunition to really control it, yeah, it might not be the easiest thing and you have to learn some new things, but it's doable and you could do it. And I think that's, again, where peer support really is important too. You know, people that are, are successful, if they tell their stories, I think that's just, I mean, I think it's just so valuable to people to know that, hey, you know, they're dealing with the same thing and they've been very, very successful. We can do it too. And I think, you know, I think, you know, how apathy, you know, trickles through, so does enthusiasm and positive attitudes too. And I think if we stay positive as healthcare providers too, and we present it as, you know, diabetes, you know, it's, you only get complications from uncontrolled diabetes, not diabetes, and yeah. you're in control. And I think that that's a really powerful message. Yeah. If you see it as an opportunity. Yeah. Well, so, and to add to that, because I know Donna mentioned the, the community piece, hearing that others have had it, have others succeeded. We have to deal with the cultural piece. People blame people for having diabetes. They say you ate too much. You see couch someone who's potato. having you go, yeah, couch potato. You see someone you know has diabetes who's sitting there eating a candy bar, and you go, what an idiot, you know. And you and a lot you may blame your relatives, or you put them, or you sabotage them. We have a whole concept called the diabetes police, where you're constantly saying you can't have that, you know. And, and that's another piece with the couple. They, there's such a danger of the couple turning into a parent and child where your doctor may have said you can't have, or you should stay away from, I shouldn't say can't, because there's, there's a way to eat just about everything if you know what you're doing. 
But if your doctor said, stay away from X, Y, and Z for the time being, and then all of a sudden the partner's going, you shouldn't, what are you doing? You're not supposed to, and how dare you? And did you do this? So now we have this, this you know, parent telling the other person that they're wrong. So to help deal with the cultural piece, it all comes from education. And that's what we hope comes from our book and and the the community of individuals that have diabetes. It, if you know where it, what's happening and what's happening to your body and, and your options and what you can do, when someone comes up to you and says, you can't eat that, you could say, well, I'm sorry, I can, and I know what I'm doing, and I thank you for your love and caring, and that you, but I know, and you don't know, so basically, leave me alone. So just having the knowledge, having more information about diabetes, having more information about medications and What's going on in your body? That's a huge piece because, as I said, our culture blames people when they get it. And the thing is, it isn't anyone's fault. You may know a lot of people who have diabetes. I mean, a lot of people who are very overweight, but they don't have diabetes. Why? Because every person with diabetes had to have some type of inherited potential. And, it, and that kicked it in. That switch went on. And, um, you know, so it's not because you had too many, you know, Hershey's kisses every morning for breakfast. Um, that's not going to do it. It's not, not, there are a lot of people who make decisions nutrition wise that they probably, you know, they don't benefit them, but they don't, that switch doesn't get flicked and they don't, uh, well, diabetes. So it's not someone's fault. I love that you point that out because I think that bleeds into every other aspect. You know, if it's like, if I was deserving of this, maybe I'm not deserving of love. It's I, it's my mistake of this. I don't get to be intimate. I, you know, or other people view it like that. Well, if you didn't eat and exercise and you don't care about yourself, how could you care about somebody else? How much does that bleed over? And, um, and sure, even if it is kind of a quiet blame on a partner's side or something like that, I could see just that um, initial culture put yeah. more stress on that relationship for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So if someone does have diabetes, then how do they determine whether any sexual issues that they're having are because of the diabetes or because of something else? And does that matter? Well, well, I don't, oh, go ahead, Donna. I, I was going to say, you know, what we always tell people is identify when it happened. And oftentimes it's the diagnosis of diabetes that kind of puts them over the edge or they start on a blood pressure medication or another medication. And the next thing they know, they can't get erection, especially in men. It's pretty, I think it's pretty obvious. And I always say, you know, it's, 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 diabetes happened over time. You just didn't develop it. You know, it's a progressive disease that's happened over time. So you don't really know. I think the important thing is, is that we're addressing it and we're finding a treatment and finding help so that it, you know, doesn't progress any, any further. So I think, you know, um, you know, it could be when it's diagnosed, they're having a problem. I've had men with really bad neuropathy. They couldn't even button the, the, buttons on their shirt when they were diagnosed with diabetes they've had it for a while and they didn't know it so it really depends but i think the message here is really you know it doesn't matter when it happens identify it and let's get treated and let's talk about it well and i think what sorry what both what both of you have said you know pamela and and, um mariah what you both said is that the book's good for anybody 
The treatments are the same. We're not saying that there's any magic treatment that's only for people with diabetes. Probably what is different is that we're asking people with diabetes to um, be a little more careful about their blood sugar issue because their body doesn't keep it in a healthy range without their personal assistance, either medicine or different food choices or physical activity. But other than that, anything that we say is for anyone who has any of these symptoms. So the treatments are the same in terms of that. Yes. So what are some of the, you've talked a lot about erectile dysfunction. Um, what are some of the treatments for that that work for people with diabetes? Yeah, there's there's quite a few treatments for men. Um, we always say it's a man's world because for women, it's a little bit different. Janice will probably address that. But for men, you know, I think probably what's really taken kind of the kind of the first place and kind of the number one therapy are the oral pills. So whether it's Viagra or Cialis or couple of others that are on the market. And um, when they came out in about 1998, when it, and I could remember my program and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not gonna have a program anymore because here Viagra's out and you know, everyone, they're gonna have treatments for it. They're not gonna need me anymore. And it just kind of opened the floodgates actually because so many men like Janice had mentioned earlier, take it and it doesn't work. So the longer diabetes, the, the more in, um, involved blood vessels and nerves are, the more difficult it is to work. Um, so I think kind of the first line therapy is probably the oral pills. There's other therapies out there's injections where you actually inject a medication that's a very, very potent vasodilator. So it's going to bring blood into the penis. So it's a, a penile injection. And, you know, it's really funny because most people, men who hear it, they're like, oh my gosh, I couldn't even imagine doing it. However, I found that it's more difficult to teach men how to do insulin than it is to do a penile injection because your end result is so much better. So, you know, when you have a, you know, a prize at the end, it's a little bit different because nobody knows where your blood sugar is going after you take your medication because you don't feel sometimes any differently. So um, injections do work. Um, there's different medications that they put in the injections and we won't go into all of that now, but um, it is a therapy and some men opt into that and it's very, very, um, they can be very successful with it. There's also um, a, a, a urethral suppository that has the same effect. It's a very potent vasodilator. Um, not that common because there is a lot of uh, irritation and burning that goes with that, but um, I've had men that love it and it works and have used it for quite a, quite, quite a long time. And then there's also um, a, a vacuum pump, which is kind of like one of the first therapies that were out, it's kind of a manual. So it looks like a pump and it, you actually, um, it inflates the penis um, and you put a band like at the support of, at the base of the penis, a rubber band. So it holds the blood in. So it's just a instrument that kind of engorges blood. And then you slip a rubber band on so that the blood stays into the penis. Um, it works for men, for, for many men, and it might not be a, ideal for some, but uh, people are successful. And, you know, if the goal is to have a penis, hard enough to have intercourse, it works. And then of course there's penile implants, which um, some for some men it's the number one therapy where that's a surgical procedure, it's all internal um, and it, it works really well too. So there's um, quite a few treatments out there. And then another treatment is not to really do anything. And some men who are very comfortable in the relationship, they have a very loving uh, relationship and they opt into doing nothing and they're very satisfied with that too. So everyone's different, but I think they each have to explore what's out there and what will work and what doesn't work, pros and cons, and then make it 
an educated decision between the two of them and what's going to work best. So quickly in a nutshell, but that's <laughs> yeah, no, what's out there. Yeah. Um, and Janice, can you talk about um, just how the different therapies for, for women? Well, I guess first talk about what are the different challenges for women? Um, I know you talked a little bit about depression, but but what other issues specifically are there, you know, like, like vaginal dryness and that sort of thing, and, and what kind of therapies are, are available? I think um, a lot of the emotional things do hit men as well, but women especially, because we do have a higher body consciousness type of thing going on. So one thing about diabetes is if you are testing your blood or taking injections, um, you may have, you know, or, or if you wear an insulin pump, you may have black and blue marks. You may have things that you're not so proud to have someone see. You may have gained weight, which happens often with insulin or often with uh, just type 2 diabetes. You may not want to undress in front of someone. You may not want them to see you. So we have that whole emotional piece. Um, if there's self-blame, we women tend to Unfortunately, we blame ourselves for a lot of things. So if you also bl blame yourself for the diabetes, um, you know, so not, you know, in terms of self-esteem, not feeling that good about yourself. Um, I've seen couples where, because it's a financial hardship for some people, depending on what their insurance is to medical care, you may feel that, I mean, the man also, you may feel that uh, you're costing your family way too much money, or maybe you make them wait because you don't feel well and you have to wait until the snack that you took kind of gives you energy again because your blood sugar dropped. And meanwhile, you're making everyone late to go to a party. Um, so there's a lot of things that when you walk into the bedroom, you don't feel so good about yourself. So that's one piece. Another thing that, that I know is a hurdle to overcome still in this day and age is there's a lot of women who do not know their bodies who don't understand themselves. They have never done any type of self-exploration or masturbation. They don't know what they like. So you don't know what to say to someone. And, you know, men aren't born knowing how women work. Um, you know, for many men, women are total mystery and, uh, and remain so. And for women too, they're total mystery. There's, uh, you know, I was with, uh, there was a woman that I was working with and I was showing her how to use, a vibrator and she said well you just kind of insert it right i mean she had no knowledge of the clitoris she had no knowledge of the whole vulva area um and so you know we we have women who have different levels of personal knowledge um also the idea of lubricants the idea of overcoming the nervousness of purchasing any product of of throwing it into your shopping cart and going, oh, how did that get in there? You know, at the, at the cashiers. Oh my, whoa, what, what's that doing next to the hairspray? You know, so, so we have we have our own types of, of issues. So I think that that's one piece. Another thing too, and I really like to quote Dr. Rosemary Bassan because she came out in, in 2000 with a whole perspective about women's sexuality. Up until her, you know, and I see Mariah nodding, but up until around 2000, when she came out with this whole notion about the female sexual experience, we always thought that men, you know, Masters and Johnson thought that men and women were identical and that you would have um, their sexual interest would kind of start to climb and you'd get much more aroused and then you'd hit a plateau and you'd have this orgasm and then you'd come down and 
you know, kick back and smoke a cigarette or whatever they used to do. So they thought that men and women had a similar type of thing. But we know from Dr. Bassan that women can enter the sexual pleasure doorway through many different openings. Um, you could, as a woman, you could still have an absolutely fabulous time if you didn't orgasm. You can have a fabulous time if you do orgasm. You could enter. Uh, you could enter sexual activity without being turned on, and then become turned on. Or you can just really enjoy it because you love to cuddle and you love to do for your partner. So just understanding that women have so many options based on our emotions, based on our energy level, stress level. So just really getting to know ourselves. I think that that's probably one of the biggest pieces is that we just are, um, you know, we're different and we're complicated. And, you know, and that's, that's, uh, on one hand, that's really good and fun. But on the other hand, is there's a lot to learn about ourselves as individuals. I'm going to go on a little tangent real quick and just recommend a, a website that I just subscribed to. Um, well, it's actually like a one-time payment um, called OMG Yes. Com. Have you heard yeah. of this? Yes, I know about it. <laughs> it's yes. fabulous. And um, oh, I just bought the first season, but it's uh, it's it's kind of like purchasing a book. Like you you make a payment and then you have access to all of the materials forever. But it, um, you know, it, it talks about all of the different types of female pleasure. Um, it's all the season one is all um, focused on the clitoris. And um, it, it has videos of like instructional videos of how to masturbate, how to pleasure yourself. And then it has advice for your partner um, and how to work with you to achieve orgasm or just a, a more pleasurable orgasm or whatever, it, whatever your goal is. Um, so anyway, fabulous resource. I think we should do yeah. an episode about it, Mariah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we will, we will. That's great. Um, I have a couple of questions. So we're kind of talking about um, your partner and how your partner can support you if you have diabetes. Because um, obviously not all of our listeners <laughs> have diabetes, but they may, you know, they might, their partner does or they know someone else. Like, how do you get to be an advocate for that person? I think my, my thought is, you know, knowledge, and I think knowledge is power and to really educate yourself about different things and so that you can come off, you know, you have informed decision making. So whatever the problem is, you need to really kind of like really investigate it and ask the questions and, you know, talk to different people, talk to your healthcare providers, or if you don't feel you're getting the answers, go to somebody else and find those answers. But I think the best thing to really arm yourself with is really kind of knowledge so that you can really go forward and help that person and really make best decisions together. Uh, I think from, you know, another, another way to look at it is just really mutual respect. A person, you know, let, let your partner know that you are going to rely on what they say. If they say, I don't want help, then say, I will take you at your word. If you say you don't want help, then I'm going to assume you don't want help and I'm going to go about and do my business. And you don't, you know, the worst thing, and I'm sure you've seen this with, with other couples that you've been involved with, is the, the assuming 
and the mind reading expectations really undermine a relationship. So if you say, no, thanks, I don't need help with this, I'm fine. And then you get angry because they didn't help you and they didn't know that you wanted them to do X, Y, and Z. So just making a policy, if I want your help with something, I am going to answer yes, and I'm gonna tell you what I need. Now, in, this, in terms of the bedroom, you have to know yourself what you need. You have to know what kind of help you need. You have to know, you know, if you tend to, uh, you know, um, sex is a physical activity, just like any playing tennis or doing anything. So you may want to have juice or snacks on the side in case you start to go low, which happens with people who have diabetes. Their blood sugar sometimes drops if they're doing something very physically demanding. So... Not, not saying, well, I assume that you would have juice for me, and I assume that you would know, well, listen, we're not going to play the games. We're going to be honest with each other. If I need it, I will ask you. If you want to help, and you, if you feel that you would like to help, ask me. And if I say yes, it'll be a yes. If I say no, it'll be a no. So I think just building that honest relationship and honest communication and learning about what you need. But, uh, you know, respecting that, I think that that can make a huge difference in a couple. I think that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, because every once in a while you get that one other couple that's like, let's go gun home and let's find all about what it is. And I'm going to, you know, like you said, the help cop kind of thing. You don't want it to be, you don't want your partner to turn into that. Um, and so kind of just taking it for face value. If they say, I'm not interested in learning more. I'm okay with how it is right now. Um, what if you are really concerned about your partner who does have diabetes? Um, have you found any success, success stories on how they can maybe gently probe or bring up questions if they go to the doctor with their partner with diabetes? And I, I you know, think, go ahead. go ahead. No, I was going to say just really quickly too. I mean, just, I think that the, the pre-visit conversation, I think has to, has to happen. And, you know, what, what are your goals when you go to the doctor today? What do you want to really focus on? And let's, you know, kind of like make sure that we know those before we go in, because oftentimes the time runs out or they have two minutes and then they panic and they don't answer them. So I think having those conversations a little bit about what do you like, what is the, your biggest issue that you want to address today so that they go in with some kind of focus. I think that's really, really important too. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, um, one thing that re that happens in some couples is that there will, the partner with diabetes does not take care of their diabetes and doesn't care. And they don't want to be told what to do and they don't want to eat differently. And consequently, not, they're not feeling well and their numbers are really bad. And every time they go to the doctor, it's a problem and um, they're not improving and they're not feeling well and all that. And so you have their partner getting angrier and mad. You're not taking care of yourself. You're killing yourself. You're doing X, Y, and Z. Because diabetes, as Donna mentioned, if you take care of your diabetes, I had one patient who told me it's like a wild animal. If you take care of it, it will go into the corner, it will be content, and it will lay down and go to sleep. But if you ignore it, it's going to get up and it's going to start to growl and it's going to make trouble and it's going to try to get your attention and it's going to start attacking. And when you have an adult who you are in a relationship with, it's their choice whether or not they want to take care of themselves. So for the person who is in a relationship with someone who is not taking care of themselves, 
that's where that external and externalization comes in with the Camilla thing. It's not the person I love. The person I love, it has, it's the diabetes, it's the swings, it's the energy levels, it's not sleeping well. All of this, people aren't at their best when they're not in, when their blood sugar is not in a healthy range. You do not feel well. You don't have the energy. You don't think clearly. It's very cloudy in your head. And um, make, making sure that the blame goes where it needs to go, which is on Camilla. It's not the person I love. It is Camilla. But then accepting the fact that this is an adult, you cannot hold that person down and force feed them. You can't make them take the medication that they don't want to take. And so that you as an individual have to decide how you're going to live your life. And if that means that you are going to uh, cuddle in bed because you adore this person, offer massage because you adore this person, and then you know, we're all responsible for our own orgasms. So if that person is not going to participate in a shared orgasm and help you, then, you know, then you can go on, you know, OMG, yes. And you can watch some, you know, um, uh, what not respectable, what do they call the porn? Uh, You know what I'm talking (laughs) ethical porn. And then, you know, Buy a buy a quality vibrator and take care of yourself in the you know in the privacy of your own time, and take care of your own needs and realize that this is the situation you have. But uh, that's adults treating each other like adults, and we hope that that type of support and freedom and non nagging situation will help encourage that person to eventually take care of themselves. But you know sometimes that's the reality. I think it's really important that um, in a little bit of time we have left that we talk about strategies to, to bring this up with your doctor um, if you're feeling embarrassed about it. So I, I know you said make sure that you've discussed it with your partner or, or come up with a plan of these are the things that I want to talk about when I get there. Um, but if, if it's someone who is so embarrassed to even bring up sex with their partner or you know, talk about anything sexual at all, how do they move past that embarrassment to bring it up with their doctor, even if they really want to? Yeah, one thing I just did recently is, you know, a lot of um, practices now have kind of like a my chart or a way to communicate by email. So, you know, a lot of times people use email when they want to kind of like circumvent kind of a tense situation, they'll put it in an email. So it works really well for that for some from for like issues that you having a hard time and you could just say you know these are my issues and you know I have a hard time even talking about it but can we address these when I come in and you know put it put it that way so that the office is aware or if the partner feels a little bit more brave might be able to you know bring up the the conversation as well but I I do think to let them know that this is bothering you and that it's a tough issue to talk about and I think that that's now I mean I mean, most practices are really online, especially today now with COVID, you know, I mean, there's ways to communicate so that it doesn't have to be that, you know, really, you know, horrifying if you're really afraid to talk about it. You know, another thing too, is that now we tend to have healthcare teams. So um, where it used to be that it was just you and the doctor, and if the doctor was uncomfortable, because healthcare providers are often uncomfortable about these questions too. We're all human here. 
And some doctors will talk around it because they don't want to bring it up either or they don't have time. So the thing is, if you know that there's a, a someone on your healthcare team who you have a better connection with, that's the person you can talk to. I began my career, as I said, as the dietitian on the team. And a lot of people would open up to me about their sexual health. I'd be asking them, you know, what are you having for breakfast? Oh, by the way, can I talk to you a little bit about that I'm having trouble with sex? Because they didn't feel they could talk to the doctor and they asked me to do it or I offered to do it. So um, just looking to someone who may be a, a be able to communicate that message. I think Donna's thought about uh, emailing it as something. Also, there's ways that you can uh, word things. For instance, you can say to the doctor at the beginning of the appointment, because the doctor has a lot of stuff that has to be covered. At the beginning of the appointment, say, I really want to make time to talk to you about something very private. And usually that's kind of a red flag, like, hmm, what could they be asking about? Or you could say, I'm having some trouble in the bedroom, and I really want to talk to you about it. And kind of using those code words that could hint at, to the doctor what you, you know, to ask. Well, let me see, let me clear it up first. Um, I, I usually like to have people mention it at the beginning of the appointment, because sex tends to be what we call a doorknob topic which means that as the doctor is closing the door, grabs the doorknob, that's when the patient says, oh, by the way, and this deserves a longer discussion than just, oh, you know, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. So, um, you know, making time for it, saying that you're going to do it. Um, if you have to, write it down in a letter and hand it to them. But the thing is, the most important thing that I know Don and I say all the time is that we all deserve to have the sex life that we want. And even though you may have to accept the fact that even with um, different tools and pills and creams and potions, you may not be 16 again, where the erection just keeps, you know, happening all the time. You may, sensuality and sexuality may have to be enlarged in terms of your definition, but we all deserve to have a quality sex life. And that in the, in the medical world internationally has been accepted as something that is a human right to be able to have the sex life, you know, to have a quality sex life. Speaking from a men's perspective, I can tell anyone who's curious about it that uh, doctors are not afraid to talk to you about it. And like, it's not as, in, it's not as in embarrassing as you would think it would be to have that conversation. It's, it's actually pretty easy. And I would say that if your if your doctor does act embarrassed about this, you know, you have every right to fire him. From Utah, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Well, doctor. That's right. Yeah, you have every right to to find someone who is a good fit for you. Right. Um. You know, it's there's there's no reason that you should suffer because your your doctor isn't enlightened about this sort of thing. Or ask for a referral. You know, say, I know that there's a lot of treatments out there. Is there a physician that really specializes in this or whatever and get a referral? Because oftentimes it's just writing the script for a pill and oftentimes it doesn't work. And then there, that follow-up isn't there. And that's what concerns me. Um, and I've seen it so much that then that they really get discouraged. And we always say, you know, when, when you fail once, you may fail again, but there's not going to be a third time. And we really have to prevent failures. Yeah. And also there's reliable, you know, wonderful shows like yours where, you know, if you can't get the information from your healthcare provider in terms of options, 
Mm-hmm. Making sure that if you are turning to some type of source for information, you turn to a source that's reliable, like like your program, and um, you know where you can openly ask questions, and you know that no one is going to make you feel embarrassed, and maybe suggest other possibilities, such as you know um, when Pamela said you know kick them to the door and get a different doctor. I mean sometimes that's what we need to hear, and to know that others have done it, and we can have the courage to do so as well. Yeah, and you know today sexuality is out there, you know, and it's pretty open. However, there's generations that it might not be that open still. So we have to respect that. And then too, a lot of the sites I find are more geared to a, to younger people maybe that are wanting to experience, experience uh, just do different things you know, and have different experiences. And it's not really geared to somebody with chronic illness. So sometimes there is a little bit of difference and sometimes I hesitate because I know in my practice, I used a lot of, um, back in the day we had the VHS tapes and we I had a, a library it's a funny story now you, you this is going back where they would actually rent them out but to be really selective in, in the types because um sometimes it could do it's it could be detrimental and a little depressing as well so I I think we have to refer them to really reputable sites and make sure that it is credible because it, there, it is a delicate balance when people have a lot of different issues going on I mean I I've taken care of men with on oxygen and wheelchairs and quadriplegics and so I I think I'm coming from more of a, a clinical perspective, but um, definitely just making sure that the sites are really credible and that the information, because there's so many scams. Janice and I have done programs on just scams, you know, with, um, you know, take this pill, you know, tiger penis soup and tiger penis pills. And <laughs> there's so many scams out there that we've um, talked a lot about <laughs> that in the past. So in the book too, it's in the book. Yeah. And how to report that. I thought that was great because yeah. we across that all the time. Um, I do have one last question. It's kind of a personal one, but because of all your research and what you guys do, how do your partners love that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and our kids, story. I should say our kids get growing <laughs> up kids. and loved it. Yeah. Kids, oh my gosh. My son, it was so funny. My son's now 28, but I think when he was in his early teens, he went on YouTube and he decided to put our name in and what popped up, but um, a video of me on television talking about female lubrication problems. Cause I used to work for this show called D life. And I was, I was on as the relationship person. It used to be on CNBC. And I heard from down the hall, I heard, mom, she said, what are you doing now? Why can't you change your name? Why do you have to do this? I mean, my husband, doesn't care he just thinks it's the funniest thing but you know my kids are like mortified and they wouldn't tell anyone what I did they just as a matter of fact oh my gosh they recently interviewed my son for a magazine I can't say because you know he actually used he wouldn't use his real name and then (laughs) still he's traumatized by it and he said that it was this you know he just said that I did help people with diabetes he didn't say anything about the sexual stuff and then when they would bring people home, you know, they were dating, they wouldn't say, we weren't allowed to say what mom did. And then, uh, you know, one person, once they finally got it, they go, oh my gosh, it's like the Fockers, you know? So <laughs> anyway, uh, my husband doesn't, my husband could care less. It's the, you know, it's the kids. Uh, I remember yes. a really funny story. We were speaking, I forgot where, but I had brought my, all the different devices and, you focused on, on men and going through security at the airport and I was with another diabetes educator and 
the security guards pulled all this stuff out and it was like really embarrassing back then. And um, the, my friend says, really, she does this for a living. I was like, <laughs> it sounds worse, but it was just the funniest thing now. It probably wouldn't matter, but trying to bring all this through security was just really, really funny. So we've had our share of, of funny stories. And then another uh, funny story is that these, this video collection that I had that I'd have men check them out. And then we had this really, the director of nursing in this hospital was just really this really, I mean, a really kind of prudish, very straight person. And the, the guy returned it to her by mistake because he was in the hospital and she opened it up and she saw this, this video. I'll never forget it. It was just like the funniest thing. So it's, we've had a lot of funny stories and a lot of different things trying to really get this whole awareness of sexual health off the ground. So we should write a book on it, Janice, just on that. Oh my gosh, seriously, seriously. <laughs> well, you know, fortunately, I don't think we look it, but we're kind of old ladies. Yeah, I mean, we're from such a yeah. different generation. It's unbelievable. Like people were mortified. When Dodonna first started speaking about it, they, you know, they called her, I mean, these are colleagues. They 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 called her the worst names. Wasn't they said you were whore? Like, I mean, it was terrible. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and they just thought I was crazy because, of course, you know, people, adults don't have sex. So how could we, you know, be talking about it? I don't know how we all got here. I told my kids they came from Kmart. I picked them up, but you know, <laughs> I felt for honest honest education. Yeah. And the people who really like would make fun of us have come around for us to help them. So I think that that's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That and then they realize, you know, that this is huge. And you know, I mean, we've come a long way in 15, 20 years, but it's still, you know, oh you gosh. still meet that same enemy all the time that just can't deal with it. Yeah. This goes well, to and, how influential yeah. you guys have been, though, and how how important this is. It's wild. And like, you know, coming full circle, we last year we spoke, we speak a lot. And again, a room this time, I think there were about 400 educators. And we did ask how many of you talked to your patients and the room was almost full. So wow. it really, I mean, what a difference. So, I mean, you know, in terms of that, we're, we're glad the conversation's the diabetes, there. Right. Yeah. It was a diabetes group, a uh, national organization. So we're, yeah, we're pleased. I mean, I think we get a big kick out of being, yeah. We have a lot of funny stories to share. It makes us laugh, oh right? We like doing oh it. Gosh. Yeah. We're like, it's insane. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, so yes, we do. You, know, you have to have a sense of humor with this stuff. So <laughs> I do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, your yeah, kids, I don't know if you have kids. I don't know if you guys have kids, but they're too young. Do <laughs> Yeah. You do? Yes. Yeah, I've had a couple walk that. around. I'm like, hold on, it's podcast time. I mean, my oldest is 10 and he's kind of like, I, oh my gosh, all the time. Yeah. He doesn't want right, to hear right. it. But. Don't say <laughs> this old... at school. Don't bring yeah. this to school. Yeah, right. My right. oldest just turned 23 this week. Oh my oh. goodness. Baby. Oh my gosh. Listen, I, I'm a guy. I have five grandchildren. You know, I have I'm three. Grand I have three grandbabies. Yeah. 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 We're old people. We're fun. We have grandma stories. We started, we started doing it before everybody had sex. We're so, we were, we've been around for so We're long. the pioneers. That's what we say. We're the we're pioneers. We're the pioneers. Yeah. I love it. I love <laughs> yeah, it. No, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> anyway. 
so great. Well, thank you so much, Donna and Janice, for coming on. Everybody, please check out their book um, called Intimacy and Diabetes. Um, and where can they find that? Um, Amazon through the ADA Amazon and also the American Diabetes Association. So, um, yeah, that's where it's, that's where it's at. I'm sure online elsewhere. I don't know. It's it's hiding somewhere. I don't know. But anyway, it's a fun book. And in the end, in the, in the back, there's uh, recipes that are diabetes friendly recipes that have aphrodisiac ingredients. So if you want to have some fun with it and, we tried yeah. to throw everything in. So good. Uh, and I really like the the chapter that had all of the aphrodisiacs listed, and it talked about smells too that were attractive. Yeah. I was surprised. Like, whoever thought to put pumpkin and lavender together? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Isn't that that's, that was really. Oh, that was really fun. Yeah, yeah. and the, yes, the, the, the nerves well. working right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so many oh, good yeah. resources in the book, just for anybody, whether you have diabetes or not. Yeah, and it's light and fun, and we tried to make it fun for sure. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. If anybody, thanks, thanks for inviting us. It yeah, fun. really appreciate it. Sure thing. If anybody um, has a difficult find uh, time finding that uh, that uh, book, they can reach out to us at saltysexcast at gmail dot com, or they can find us at Twitter at saltysexcast. Or they can find us on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Patreon, or forward slash Salty Sexcast. We'd be glad to share that information with you or pass along any questions you might have. Yeah. Thank you, Rainy. Is this one of those awkward pauses, it's Mariah? Awkward Zoom pause. It's so yeah. well. <laughs> I know. Well, it was just hard because there's four of us. I'm like, who's going to talk? Um, but yes, thank you again so much for coming on. I loved hearing about all that expertise. I, I've been passing little snippets to my dad who has type 1 diabetes. So I'm like, so there's this book. I don't know. Yeah. Definitely. We're going to flip the script instead of, you know, the parent to the child. It'll be the child telling the parent about it. But good. Okay. Good. That's good. <laughs> Yay, dad. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope you guys stay safe during this quarantine, and we really yeah, you too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely, we appreciate it. Great. All right. Bye bye. We will see you guys next week. Stay sexy and salty. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, and what's puberty? Puberty. Well. Puberty's a lot of things. Here's the piece. When you hear about it first, it sounds very strange. Oh, if it really bothers you, you should see a doctor. Then at puberty, certain glands begin to work, and our bodies begin to change. It enlarges the penis itself. And there's a center opening between those two, which is called the vagina. The sex education you wish you had in high school. Maybe a diagram will help.